Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You that, Lord, You are the cornerstone. That, Lord, we can come to Your throne because of Your Son's death on the cross in our place. Lord, we just are so blessed by that. I pray that as we dig into Your Word today, that, Lord, we would move from people who have our hope and our trust and our, 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 our cornerstone in something other than You. I pray that we would move to have that cornerstone be where it should be, the only foundation, the only way forward, Lord, without trusting in Your Son. We give You the praise and the glory in Your name. Amen. Well, good morning. You guys all sounded amazing. Thank you for singing. I'm glad I wasn't the only one. That was good. Just like I don't want to look at myself, I don't want to hear myself either. So I appreciate you guys doing that. Um, if you would, open up your Bibles to James chapter 1. We started our uh, look at the book of James this last week, the letter from the brother of Jesus. We're in James 1, 5. Um, this, uh, this book is imp- impressive. You know, it starts right off with James you know, telling who he's written it to. He's written it to a bunch of uh, pilgrims, a bunch of exiles, much like our First Peter book that we looked at. And then he goes right into it. He doesn't wait. And so last week we saw it said, count it all joy, consider it joy when trials happen. All right? Now, I want to ask you, those of you that were here last week, how'd you do with that? That's about what mine was like. I don't think I waited about an hour before something went wrong, and I was not going, oh, joy. Instead, I was going, can you believe, you know, right? That's the, that's the response we had. On the, the, on the complaining, counting it joy grading scale, you know, where would we put ourselves this week? Now, some of you might be like, well, you know, uh, I wasn't here last week, so I don't know what you're talking about. Well, that's good, because this builds on top of what we saw last week, which is James says, bad things going to happen. Count it joy. And if you do, you'll be mature and you'll be lacking in nothing. And today, he starts right into how to do that. So last week, we got the charge, and we kind of let you go. Go count it joy. Pastor Scott did a great job of telling us how to do that. Well, now James is going to add to that. So this week is really how to do that. How do we, how do we have bad things happen to us? Because I think 2000, 2020 is going to be the year of constant trials. Um, not just the everyday trials, but everybody's dealing with the same trials, all different amounts and different magnitudes, but this is the year of the trial. And uh, I, I don't know what, what 2020 has got in store for us, but I do know that God is in control. And I do know that God is that firm foundation. And so that's what James is going to bring out. So we're going to work today to pull ourselves out of the nosedive that we get into when we see trials as a bad thing, as something to not joy in. And we're going to talk about how that happens and how to change that perspective. So I'm going to let James uh, explain it to us, and then I'm going to walk through a little bit of the passage. So verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. 
Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower fails and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So we see right here, James is laying it right out for us. This is a Really, it's, it's James explaining the how. And so, the first thing we see is, and this, this is kind of the overarching theme for this part of James, and it's really the overarching themes for all of James, is trials are coming. And I love how James doesn't sugarcoat this, right? He doesn't say, trials are coming, but you'll be fine. He goes, trials are coming. Consider it joy. And so, he's, he's providing us with a means to be able to get through these trials with a certain amount of success and a certain outcome. Because when we see trials as just the randomness of the universe, then we kind of have to go, oh, I hope something good comes from this. But when we see it rightly, that this is every single thing that's happened to us is from the Lord, and the Lord tells us why He does it for our growth and our maturity, then we can have joy in it. And so, right from the start, He says, ask for wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach. So verse 5 says what to ask for and who to ask it of. But first, you have to see that you're lacking something before you can ask for it. And so the very first step is going, I'm not wise. And then admitting that, and that's the first step to wisdom. Charles Spurgeon says, Many a man might have known if he had been but aware that he did not know. A sense of ignorance is the doorstep of the palace of wisdom. Charles Spurgeon, man, he had a way with words. Um, yeah, you, got, you got me, you don't got Charles Spurgeon, but I'll just quote Charles Spurgeon. How's that sound? God is not like us. He's not lacking. Instead, He has everything. We miss the point, He is the point. So the first step, the first thing we have to see is we have to see we don't have wisdom. We don't have it. We lack it. And so, by knowing that we lack it is the first step towards wisdom. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. So we are to ask God for this thing called wisdom. Now, what exactly is wisdom? We have whole books of the Bible devoted to this. We have what's called the wisdom literature in the Bible. Psalms and Proverbs and a few others. But what is wisdom? wisdom. Well, one uh, study Bible says it's the God-given and God-centered discernment regarding practical issues. Wisdom comes from prayer for God's help. It's a very scholarly kind of bookish version of it, but basically wisdom comes from God and it is a relationship with God. It's not like money. When God gives us money, he says, here, have the money and then go do something with it. That's not the way wisdom works. The Bible does not treat wisdom as a thing that God gives to you and then you go and do whatever. Instead, wisdom is a relationship with God. It's a relationship with God. And when you have that relationship with God, you are then able to see the world rightly. It puts the world in the right place. Not only can you see the world rightly, but you can see everything in the world, all the movements of everything, including trials, the way they are meant to be seen. Now, from time to time, our world does appear to be wise, and I would say it's probably like a broken clock. 
It's right twice a day. But true lasting wisdom can only come from the knowledge that is given to you by a relationship with God. You can be a good person, you can be a skillful person, you can be a successful person, but that doesn't guarantee that you will be wise. Wisdom only comes from a relationship with God. But praise the Lord that the next part, he says, he will give it. This is a promise. The Bible says, he will give you the wisdom. Not that he may give you, but that he will give you. you all you need to do is ask. And I so love that word, who gives generously. Not begrudgingly, not stingily, but generously. And generous has two nuances to it, and they both fit God. And you'll see this. One has to do with the amount, and one has to do with the attitude. So when we say someone's generous, it means they give lots of stuff. And that's true of God. He wants to give you lots of wisdom. There's no capping it. It's not some wisdom. It's wisdom, right? So we see He'll give you liberally, generously, willfully. And then we see that his attitude, his attitude is one of gladness. It's one of, I'm gladly giving it to you. He gives us freely all that we need, wisdom-wise. Now notice as well, it says, he gives generously to all. Now, what does all mean? Well, all means all, right? Uh, All means everyone. So does that mean pastors can have it? Elders? Yep. Does it mean ministry leaders? Yep. Does it mean everyone in this room? The answer is yes. All means all. All y'all. Go southern on you. All y'all. Okay? Every single one of us can have this wisdom that is generously given by God to all. There's no one outside of it. This isn't for varsity Christians. It's for all of them. Then it says, without reproach. Now, that's a churchy word. But it's still a great word, and I love it. It means without hesitation. See, unlike when someone gives us something in life, and I think as a parent, I I hear myself saying this, so I probably have. You know, when, when a kid asks for something after you've already, didn't I already give that to you? What happened to the other one? You know, didn't, where did you put that other, you know, whatever it is, right? You give the kid a fork, they go to the table, and somehow between the kitchen and the table, the fork disappears. Where'd the other one go? Right? It's probably stuck in his brother's hair or something, right? So you get this idea of that's kind of how we see God. Oh, man. You know, he's going to be like, oh, you again, Pastor John. That's the third time I've given you. That's not the way God works. Instead, God is, oh, you asked again. Sweet, come. I have it for you. You see, God is like a pitcher tilted towards his children. And he's just waiting to pour wisdom onto our trial parched lives he just is waiting to do it and he 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 wants that because as soon as we go to him and ask for it it's a relationship that's there and that's the wisdom that he wants he wants relationship with us god wants to pour it on us he's not going to demean us for us asking but besides that we also sometimes are kind of a little embarrassed We, we many of us think that wisdom is something you just are born with or you just have and so we feel foolish going to God and going, God, I, I'm, I need some wisdom. Well, God already knows. He already knows. He created you. He knows every hair on your head. He knows that you need wisdom. You're not keeping it from Him. It's not like He's like, oh my gosh, I had never thought of that. He, he knows. You're not fooling Him. So when you go to Him 
you are to go to Him and recognize that He's generous and without reproach. Now, the next thing we see is we see a requirement. We see that we are required to ask by faith. It says, let him who asks, ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. So verses 6, 7, and 8, these are the how to ask and how not to ask. And so James is a teacher. He says, this is the way you do it. This is the way you don't do it. And he tells us why. Now, he starts with faith. He says, you must ask in faith. Now, this is a key word in this book. If you've been around the church for any amount of time, you know that James deals with works and faith. And if you've studied anything in church history, you know there's been a beef between Martin Luther and the book of James because Martin Luther loved Romans, which is all about faith. And the book of James seems to say faith and works, but Romans faith alone and back and forth. So we need to make sure we understand what faith is. And when we do, we're going to see that you know, Martin Luther didn't need to have a beef between him and the book of James because it's the same faith. It's the same God. It's the same explanation. And for us, well, that's great. Okay, you showed off, Pastor John, you showed off your knowledge of Martin Luther and all that. But look at what it says here. It says, you will not receive anything without it. Not just wisdom, but you won't receive any of God's gifts without faith. So I think we probably need to make sure we know what that is. Now, if I asked you and I said, what, do you have faith? Many of us would say, yeah, but not enough. I don't have as much faith as fill in the blank. Or maybe some would say, yeah, you know, I, I, I made a profession of faith. I trusted in Christ when I was a kid. Or I trusted in Christ when I was older in my life. And that's my faith. The problem with that is that that's not what James is talking about here. That's a really truncated version of faith. James's faith is a much more robust. It's much more uh, living and vibrant. And what that looks like for us is very key because it's the faith we need to have. It's the faith we need to have to be able to experience the wisdom, to experience the joy in the trials that we face. So here it is. If you write anything down, write this down because this is the definition of faith. Faith is the living out of the certainty that God is real. Faith is the living out of the certainty that God is real. So, I know God is real. I live that out. That's faith. It's very different than how we picture faith. It's very different how our world uses faith. Our world likes to use faith as, oh, you're of the, the faith tradition this, or you're a, a faith person. Right? It's kind of like this class of person. But instead, the Bible, the book of James says, faith is the living out of the certainty that God is real. Another way to say it is, faith is responding to God's faithfulness with your own faithfulness. Faith is responding to God's faithfulness with your own faithfulness. Because remember, the Bible says He doesn't change. And actually, James says that in the next passage that we'll do next week. God doesn't change. He doesn't vacillate. He doesn't go all over. He's there. His faithfulness is assured. And our faithfulness in response is showing our faith. In the Bible, the word pistis is the Greek word for faith. It can be translated faith or faithfulness. And the, the translators have to take the context to kind of weigh which one is which. But honestly, they both work. When we talk about our faith, 
we're talking about our faithfulness. We're talking about our faithfulness, we're talking about our faith, and it interchanged. Because see, when you're faithful, you're loyal, you love, you cling to, you trust. Everything is wrapped up in that word faith. Most of the time when we, we look at faith in our world, looks at it as like agreeing with assenting to. So when I say, oh yeah, um, I believe that God created the heavens and the earth, and I say, I agree, we say that's faith. That's not what James says. It's far too weak view of faith. It's much more robust. And so when we get to James 2, if we believe that faith is just saying, I agree, that's not going to cut it. And that's where we're going to see the problem with faith and works, is because faithfulness automatically leads, leads to works. Assenting to something and saying, I agree with this statement, is not going to help us when it comes time to work. Think about it this way. When we talk about marriage, in, in some marriage ceremonies I've been to, and I probably will use this from now on because it's really good, is that you'll hear the, the pastor say, the faith now mutually pledged. Okay, It's kind of a way that I've heard it said before. What this means is it means that the husband has indicated he will be faithful. And the wife has indicated she will be faithful. But what is this faith that they're pledging? It's the same faith we see here. It's the same concept. Because if you ask someone and you say, are you married? They would say something like, sure, I had a wedding day. Is that a good answer? would be like, hmm, I don't think so. How about, are you married? And they say, yes, I agreed to the terms. I signed the document. I'm married. We would go, huh, not for long, right? But when, what we expect to hear is we expect to hear, you're married, which means I have organized my life and ordered my priorities around this other. And we would say, well, that's what marriage is. That's what marriage is. It's the idea of organizing around the other. The same thing goes for our faith with God. It is not a, I did this. It's not a, I agreed to this. It's a, I've ordered my life around this. Another problem we have with faith, and we see this a lot in pop culture, is they kind of treat it like a, a video game. And this right there, I might not resonate with some of you. But on video games, you have a little power uh, gauge at the bottom, and you collect certain things, and it gets stronger and stronger. And when it gets full, you have a new power that you can do. You can beat the big bad guy at the end. They call them bosses, Right? That's not what faith is either. Faith is not, i got to accrue more and more and more and more and then I can be whatever. Instead, faith is full devotion to the fact that there is a God and you serve Him. Because faith is either you have it or you don't. It's either there or it's not. Because remember, faith is the living out the certainty that God is real. It's faithfulness in response to His faithfulness. So that's the picture of faith. And we're going to keep coming back to this. And you, by the time we're done with James, hopefully you've got that definition. And again, you're going to be warring with the world and their definition and maybe even some other Christians and how they view it. Because this is what the Bible says. But we're going to keep going on. The second requirement is that we must not doubt. But let, let, let us ask by faith with no doubting. And when I see that, I think of the many, many students that I've, I've, I've taught and counseled that have said, well, but I don't, what, what about, what if God doesn't, what if Jesus didn't, what if, 
And they have all these what-if questions. That's not what this is talking about. This is not talking about having questions that you want to take to get answered about what the Bible says or about God's character or something like that. Instead, this comes from the word to judgment. The word, the word doubt here in the Greek means to judgments. Okay? Another, one is, uh, another way to say it is disputing with oneself. So the idea here is not doubting going, I wonder if that actually happened that way. Or I wonder how that happened. Instead, it's, I am going to believe this, and I'm also going to believe that. Two diametrically opposed things. So James is talking about this back and forth doubting. And we see this, we see this in our lives today. We hope in God and something else. We hope in God and a political party. We hope in God and a good job. We hope in God and a family. We hope in God and our retirement, God and our health. And when we do this, we are doing what is called doubting. We are taking this to judgments. Probably a better way for us to understand this would be looking at it through trials and these things we're dealing with. So when you get a trial, when you get something bad happen, you pray to God and you go gorge on chocolate. Right? Okay? Maybe it's just me. Someone comes and hurts you, you pray to God and then you gossip about them. Or you pray to God and you plan out revenge, even if you don't act on it. Or you're disappointed with what's going on in life, and you pray to God, and then you get some me time, or you go shopping on Amazon. Okay? Or you cruise Pinterest and try to find the right thing. That's not me, just so you know. So, doubting here is hedging your bets. It's saying, God, I, I trust you, but I'm also going to make sure and have a backup plan in case you don't come through. That's the doubting that James is talking about. It's either all or nothing. Because that's what faith is. It's either there or it's not. It's none of this hedging. Now, James 6, 7, and 8 are a, a cool little feature to the book of James. And I don't know if it's really there or if I'm imagining it, but I've seen it elsewhere in James. And I'm going to call it a James sandwich. And I totally made that up. And if someone else already said it, I didn't copy them. But it's the best explanation I could come with. But verse 6 and verse 8 go together, and verse 7 is the conclusion. Because the, the, the Jews, they didn't always think linearly like we do. You know, when we do like a, a logical, what's called syllogism, we have two, you know, A plus B equals C. Instead, what James is going is A, C, B, right? So they're kind of all over the place. So he's going to take verse 6 and say, here's why doubting doesn't work. He's going to take verse 8 and say, here's why doubting doesn't work. And then he's going to conclude it with what you should believe in verse 7. So I know some of you are going to be annoyed because your brains like to go chronological, like totally linear. We're going to go kind of jump around. This will, I only do this once in a while. Okay, So we'll, we'll do it right here, but it'll, you'll, hopefully it will help you see this passage. So the question that James is trying to deal with is, why does doubting not work? So verse 6, For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, tossed about, driven by the wind. Now, I've seen a few of you have gone to the beach recently. Some of you are my friends on Facebook. I know there's a few others that have been there. We went there back in August, and the big crashing waves, you know, especially if you're sitting inside and warm, and you see those big crashing waves, and they're powerful, and there's just something majestic about it, right? And we can even set our clocks by it. The tides come in, they go out. They come in, they go out. It's all very regimented. That's not what this is talking about, okay? Now, the Oregon coast is beautiful, and there are times when that, watching that's great. This is not the waves we're talking about, because those waves are really consistent. Yeah, they're all a little different. 
not what we see here. What James is thinking about is he's thinking about the Sea of Galilee. Well, the Sea of Galilee is an enormous freshwater lake. And what you notice about freshwater lakes that are inland, surrounded by land, is they have no wave pattern. If you live by the Great Lakes, um, the same thing happens there. Those aren't freshwater, but you get the general idea. Is these huge, all these random winds, and it goes all sorts of different directions. So one, one author said that the Sea of Galilee would go up, down, sideways, and swirl all at the same time. Kind of lets you, you know, those professional fishermen that, that Jesus was, you know, taking as his disciples, knows, you know why they were so scared with the storm in the Sea of Galilee. Because there's no predicting it. And that's exactly what we see here, is that this person who doubts, who has that double judgment, their faith is going in all sorts of directions. It's not going in the right one. And so that's the first reason why doubting doesn't work. The second one is in verse 8. He is a double-minded man. Literally, the Greek says, two minds in one person. Devotion to God and devotion to something else. Mr. Uh, John Bunyan, I love John Bunyan, and he, he says, this is Mr. Facing Both Ways. Right? So again, it's that same kind of picture we had with that doubting, but it's not two brains. It's literally going two separate directions at the same time. You know, right now in our world, identity is a huge discussion point. Identity politics are in the news nonstop. Right? People, are, people are identifying in many different ways, and they're this and they're that. And Christians are not supposed to be that. Christians are not supposed to be two separate judgments. They are to be Christian. And your faith and your loyalty is in Christ and Christ alone. The second example he has builds off of this one. It's he is unstable in all his ways. This is, again is that vacillating back and forth. It's not so much that this person is rebellious and that they're going... No, God, I'm going my own way. It's going, yeah, God, but I also want to go this way. And they, they go back and forth. And it's unstable in all his ways. I like this. He is consistently inconsistent in his following of God. Consistently inconsistent. It's not Spurgeon, but it's, you know, it's good. These people are unwilling to let go of the world. They're torn between their sin and their obedience, and they just... Pleasures of the world are too much, and they go back and forth. James is going to reflect on this inconsistency throughout the book of James. One author called it spiritual schizophrenia that James criticizes and says, basically, your two minds go in two separate directions without any focus on the Lord. Because ultimately, faith is believing and submitting to God. Someone might say, well, I don't know what the will of God is. Well, you can ask them, well, if you knew the will of God, would you submit to it? And if their answer isn't yes, then why do you want to know the will of God if you're not going to submit? Because ultimately, when we have faith, it's that faithfulness in response to His faithfulness. So now we return to verse 7. This is the conclusion that 6 and 8 deal with. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Like a little cork on a raging sea, torn between two souls. This describes many of us. I know it describes me, and it has described me even worse in the past. 
See, this person's a believer. That's what it says. It says he's a brother. So this person has eternal life. This person has the Holy Spirit, but yet is vacillating back and forth. And so he actually gets the worst of both worlds, doesn't he? Right? He gets the fact that the trial's coming and it's terrible and he's got to deal with it by himself instead of trusting in and tapping into the wisdom and the joy that is there in Christ. What a tragic waste. Do you understand who you're doubting? This giver of wisdom? This source of wisdom? There's nowhere else to go. So what do we do with this? Okay, we're double-minded. That's bad news. The good news is, is that we can repent. And repent means to humbly ask the Lord to forgive you and help you go a new direction. So we're double-minded. We're going two different directions. One towards God and one away from God. We repent of the way from God and we fully give our faithfulness, our faith to the One who is faithful. Because to endure trials, we have to have the wisdom that comes from a relationship with the wisdom giver. So this is the wisdom that James is talking about. He says, get wisdom. Ask God for wisdom. Here it is. God is who you need. The lowly and the rich. So we're going to see this picture here that James gives us. James teaches. He goes right to an example. And he says, there's rich people and there's poor people. And both of them find their identity in Christ. And that's what matters. Because ultimately, what does 1 Corinthians 4, 7 say? What do you have that God hasn't given you? If everything you have is from God, why do you boast as if it were not a gift? So this is about heart condition. And I love this. When I first read this, I was like, it, it kind of made me think that there was James was just jumping around. But as I read it and read it and heard some, some, some preachers on it and talked to the other pastors, we all go, oh, this is an example. And it's kind of so clear. It's like you guys probably saw it the first time. It took me a few times. But this is what it says. Let the lowly brother, lowly meaning poor, brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower fails and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. So now we see this and with there being a comparison, immediately we see ourselves in there. Which of these are we? Well, I'm clearly the lowly or I'm clearly the rich. But it's kind of like the faith question, isn't it? How much money do you have to have before you would self-identify as rich? Or who do you have to compare yourself to to identify? What if you compare with somebody in a different country, in a different part of time? Ultimately, it's not about how much money you have. It's about where your loyalty lies. Is my loyalty, is my devotion to my money, or is it not? And so that's ultimately what he's talking about here. So the lowly are to exalt in their hope, or sorry, they're to, they are to hope in Christ and His exaltation. They are to identify with Him. And one day, when He is exalted, they will be exalted. You look forward to what's coming, not to your situation that you're in. For the rich, they are to identify with Christ and His humiliation. The story of their life is to be one of humiliation because Christ was way richer than they were and He became as nothing for us. And so ultimately, the rich is to not see their identity in what they've been given, but in who they serve. Now, the lowly aren't off the hook here. 
Because we, the poor have a temptation as well. It's called if onlyism, right? This is the idea that if only I had this, I would be that. If only I had that. If only I was as rich as so and so. If only I had that. And as soon as we start doing that, they're trusting in their wealth just as much as the rich are. So the poor must choose to see themselves in light of the cross, in light of Christ. Now the rich, they're not to have a undivided loyalty, to have a divided loyalty. They're to be undivided in their loyalty to Christ. Trust in Him. And look at the warning here. The warning is threefold. Three different times. It says, the grass withers, the flower, it fails, and the beauty of it all perishes. When someone in the Bible repeats themselves three times, you pay attention. And James is getting that here. He's saying, if you trust in money, the money's going away. Only thing that matters is Christ. Jesus talked about this. I love that James is pretty much quoting Jesus from Luke chapter 12 where he's talking about the rich man, the rich man who had gotten an inheritance, and he had all this money, and he's like, I'm going to build all these barns and all these warehouses. And then what, is, what does it say? God says, you fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, who will they go to? The idea here is, is that the rich one, hoping and trusting in their riches, is going to be disappointed. So the rich believer is not to think too highly of themselves. In our world, we elevate the rich. Whenever there's something that happens, a news media calls one of the richest people in the world, asks them their opinion. Okay, they're speaking about something they don't know. Why do we care? Well, they're rich. That's not the way it should be. James instead says, take pride not in your money, but in the fact that you are humbly attached to the one who was despised and rejected for you. When the poor person does not focus their loyalty on Christ singularly, they show they do not have faith. And their result would be they will not participate in the exaltation. The rich person who does not focus his loyalty singularly on Christ reveals that he does not have faith. And that faith means that he will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So ultimately there's an encouragement and a warning. The encouragement is ask for wisdom. You need it. God will give it to you overwhelmingly. More than you can imagine. And then when you pursue Him with loyalty, with your identity, when trials hit, you'll rejoice. That's the promise. That's the encouragement. The warning is when trials come and you try to do it on your own, you're going to wilt and fade away. So there's the promise and there's the promise. So in order to endure trials, we must have wisdom and we must be clear on who we are. See, the difficulty of counting it all joy is that it's our leading spiritual indicator. If we're not counting it all joy, it sets off an alarm that says, hey, you know what? We lack wisdom. We lack that wisdom that comes from a close relationship with the Lord. And hopefully, now that you've read this, now that you've heard this, it'll prompt us to ask God for that wisdom, for more of Him. And as we do that, this wisdom will say, where's my divided loyalty? Am I trusting in God and? And whatever that is, no matter how good that thing is, it needs to not be there. It needs to be God and God alone. And when we do that, the joy is just waiting to be poured out onto us as we deal with our trials. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you that this word was given to us today, Lord. 
on October 11th for these saints here in this room. We praise You, Lord, that, that in Your divine plan You brought us all here at this moment to hear this. And Lord, we all need Your wisdom. So I pray that You would pour it out onto us, that we would have a relationship with You, that we would come to know You more and more. Lord, be pleased with this time that we've spent. Continue to work on us as we finish up. In Your name, Amen.